It's me to follow three very difficult acts. I'll do my best. Can I take up a point that everyone's raised? Uh, and that is the cabinet and other records that have come out in the last few months. Because it seemed to me that two things come out of that very clearly. One is the uncertainty within government in the summer of 1984 about what was going to happen. And the other is the centrality to any government strategy of the fact that the Nottinghamshire coal field remained at work, produced coal, and it was burned in the power stations <clears throat> along the Trent Valley. Uh, I want to talk primarily about Notts and about the working coal fields, because I think this does raise serious questions about the strike, about the strategy of the NUM, and the structure and culture of the union. Uh, my qualification is that I grew up in what Dennis Skinner insists to me was Scab County, or still is Scab County. So this is, this is the culture that I absorbed when I was young. Uh, the strike I spent in Lancashire, which was a divided coal field, and one of the issues that always was posed to me was uh, why are Lancashire and not so different when the traditions that they had within the National Union were really at least at first sight, similar. I'll take the historical perspective a long way back. I want to go back to 1912, to a miner coming home in the Knotts Coalfield in Eastwood, being <coughs> bathed in front of the fire by his wife, and then getting into an argument about the pending national strike, the 1912 strike on the minimum wage. And the woman, Mrs. Bower, is very upset about this, and in the end she comes out with a comment that could reverberate down the years. Her comment is, it's those Yorkshire and Welsh colliers who, are, who do it. It's a union strike, this and not a men's. And that comment in 1926 could be heard in Nottinghamshire, and it was there again in 1984. Mrs. Bower, in fact, never existed. She was a fictional character invented by the young D.H. Lawrence who would come home just before the strike, finds himself in the middle of this, he's jobless and wants to earn some money by writing pieces on his community. But it tells us something about Nottinghamshire and about its peculiar history, and that's one of the threads that I want to carry through this presentation. The other thread is something else that happened later in 1912 in July when Robert Smiley from Lark Hall becomes the first socialist president of the Miners' Federation. I think one of the giants of mining union history. And Smiley, a man throughout his career as president, who had a very sensitive awareness of the brittleness of any national unity. And so we see in the MFGB and later in the NUM the maintenance of massive powers retained in the areas. Powers of finance, that was where the most of the full-time officials were. That was where most of the decisions were taken. And the whole idea that a united collective action was a very difficult matter. And through the early decades of the NUM, of course, one finds the union ruled by a right-wing coalition. I mean, that's true from the union's re reformation in 1945 through to the 70s. And it's a coalition that's really founded on two things. One is the fact of a publicly owned industry, and the other is the politics of the Cold War. And within that, the federal structure appeared to function fairly well. And then, of course, the world alters. It alters because of the massive pit closure program of the 60s. 
which among other things changes the relative weights of the areas within the NUM. Yorkshire becomes by far the biggest area and the second biggest area from the 1960s is Nottinghamshire which before had only counted as a, a medium-sized element. The other thing that happens, of course, is the development of the National Power Loading Agreement from 1966, which leads to the higher paid coal fields being held back until there is rate equalisation, and that is actually, of course, the basis that produces the unity of 72 and 74. For the first time, there can be unity on a wages strike because everybody has been radicalised. The high earners have been radicalised because they've been held back. The other coal fields are often pretty radical to start with and only feel they're getting what they should have had in the first place and what they should have had in the first place by the early 70s isn't good enough anyway. So the NPLA, which is controversial within the union, produces a unity over wages that is crucial to the solidarity and the victories of 72 and 74. So that's one theme that one can take forward, I think, that within that period, unity within the NUM is a brittle achievement. It's achieved in a national strike or two national strikes in the early 70s because of the particular development of the wages system. And if we look at knots, in all of this. We find, of course, a very distinctive history. 1926 and the early return to work, the development of the Spencer non-political union, the reunification of the Spencer union with the Nottinghamshire Miners Association in 1937, which preserves George Spencer as president of the new union and takes into the reunited Knots Union a lot of the culture of the non-political breakaway. And it's always struck me as significant that the conference that effectively founds the NUM in 1944 is held in Nottingham and that Spencer takes a leading role in trying to limit the centralisation within the National Union. So Knots does have a peculiar history. And yet I think it's important when we look at the Nottinghamshire case not to stereotype. I can remember talking to pickets in Yorkshire during the strike and they had a very simple view of knots, that they were all scabs, that it was a form of genetics, that you could do nothing about it. I mean, all of you have heard these things. In fact, the knots coalfield was remarkably diverse. The Erewash Valley in the west of the county had only two collieries by 1984. They didn't last long. There were the collieries of the Lean Valley and the Mansfield area, which came from the mid and late 19th century, and then the big new pits that were sunk after the First World War in what became known as the Dukeries Coalfield. And the form of settlement of Knott's miners varied. Many of them were what is sometimes called commuting miners. They lived in towns or in Nottingham. But in the east of the coalfield, the sort of lads I went to school with, they came from pit villages that were as near to the classic mining community as anything that you would find in Durham and South Wales, within the countryside, isolated from everywhere else, very homogeneous occupational structures. So Notts was diverse, and of course it was diverse in another way, that because of the closures of the 60s, and indeed because of some of the retrenchments of the 1920s, Nottinghamshire had become a very cosmopolitan coalfield. 
that miners from the northeast and Scotland by the 1980s made up a very large part of the workforce. And one of the things that bemused northeastern pickets when they went to Ollerton and Thorsby in the strike was to hear guys who spoke just like them walking past the pickets and going into work. And one of the reasons for this that had not occurred to me until not long ago, I had a very useful long chat with David Hamilton, the former delegate from Moncton Hall, who is now MP for Midlothian. And he told me that in the 60s he did move to Nottinghamshire and he didn't stay there long because he found the system of relationships under the ground, the cooperation, the deference of the workforce very hard to take. And he said those who did stay were very often people who basically had taken a punt on a higher paid future and security and to a degree were prepared to agree with systems of working and a workplace culture that at home they would have found unacceptable. So Knott's was complicated. And the other thing one should remember about Knott's is that the geological conditions in the adjacent parts of South Yorkshire were the same. And yet the industrial relations culture, particularly in the Doncaster coalfield, of course, was massively different from Nottinghamshire. That's where the pickets came from Armthorpe and Hatfield to the North Knotts Pits in the first few days of the strike. So it wasn't just a matter of geology. It wasn't just a matter of economics. It was also a matter of the culture within the area unions that had developed over a long time. And in the case of Knotts, it was a culture of high wages, high productivity. The idea that a consensual relationship between management and miners would produce better outcomes. And also, I have to say, among a lot of Knotts miners, the idea that somehow the miners in South Wales and Scotland and the northeast, northeast didn't work as hard, that they were prepared to settle for lower earnings. So the self-image was one. I, I was in Spain recently. I went to a wedding in Catalonia, and one of the things that struck me was that the Knotts NUM were a bit like the Catalans, that they regarded themselves as more efficient, more progressive, more advanced than the rest of Spain. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so there are those factors. And then, of course, this raises an issue which has been referred to already, and which I think does have to be addressed, and that's the issue of the ballot. Because I think the important ballot in this story was the one that happened in 1977 over area incentive schemes, where the result of the ballot was to reject them. And immediately, not and the other coal fields, encouraged by the national president, Joe Gormley, went ahead and ignored the ballot result and uh, introduced incentive schemes anyway. And the result was, of course, that when one area did it, it was irrational for any other area to not do it. And the more crucial thing was that the form of unity that had developed around the MPLA was gone forever that a basis for solidarity within the National Union had been destroyed. And there was another, I think, toxic legacy that the NUM, like any trade union, allows in its management for what I suppose you could call fair cheating. People bend the rules. They make use of ambiguities. In the eyes of a lot of people, the behavior of knots and other areas over the incentive scheme was not fair cheating. It was cheating. It was a fiddle. 
it introduced the idea that the constitution of the Union was something that should not be taken seriously and could be used aggressively for partisan purposes. So that was the legacy that led up to 83-84. And there's one other point I would make, and that is about the politics of the Nottinghamshire Coalfield. That in the 1983 election, the one where Thatcher was returned with the help of the Social Democrats with a massive majority, the established mining seats in Nottinghamshire, particularly Mansfield, saw massive falls in the Labour majority. But there was a new constituency formed in Notts in 1983, Sherwood. Sherwood had 10 working collieries. It had more than any other constituency in Britain. And Sherwood, in the summer of 1983, returned a Conservative member, Andy Stewart, to the House of Commons. And that may raise questions about the political culture of the Notts Coalfield. Having said that, one of the things very striking, and I mean, Neil Kinnock's papers contain quite a bit on this, and so does Stan Orms, is that after the UDM had been formed, following the strike, there are an awful lot of UDM branch officials who are actually Labour councillors or Labour Party members within Nottinghamshire, and this, of course, then raised questions about their status within the party, most obviously, of course, because the UDM could never be an affiliated union. So we have the distinctiveness of Notts, we have an area within the NUM that was regarded not just by the more left areas, but also by other areas on the right as in some way odd, as distinctive. But it was a big area. And therefore, in any strategy for a national strike, its position could not be ignored. I just want to agree, agree totally with Terry Thomas here. I, I, I think there was no chance of a majority in a national ballot in March 1984. There was no reason why the arithmetic of the ballot on Lewis Merthyr 12 months before could have radically changed. And that, I think, poses a big issue, and it's an issue about the relevance or appropriateness of a national ballot on a question of pit closures. And I think there are two reflections that are worth noting here. One comes from democratic theory, and it's the problem of the intense minority. That basically, in a national ballot on closures, closures are felt by the members of the union to affect only a minority. And therefore, what can be the procedural rule that gives due weight to that without completely removing the majoritarian principle. That's a democratic dilemma. It was raised by John Lloyd in a Fabian pamphlet at the time. It was then ignored by him when he wrote a book with, a with Martin Aidney called Lost Without Limits, and I think it is a serious issue. The whole question of the secret ballot was actually dealt with by John Stuart Mill in the late 19th century. Mill was opposed to the secret ballot, and he was opposed to the secret ballot for one reason which is that he felt secrecy allowed people to do in private things they would never own up to doing in public. Uh, in other words, the Knotts miners frequently told pickets that they were prepared to vote for a strike. And yet the reality, of course, is that only a quarter of them did in the area ballot in March 1984. So the question of the national ballot, I think, is one that raises major questions about 
democracy, but not the questions that are often the ones portrayed in the standard literature. As a good friend of mine from Parkside, Colliery in Lancashire said, secret ballot is wrong on closures because why should someone be able to sneak into a corner and vote some other poor bastard out of a job? In other words, John Stuart Mill's view expressed more succinctly and effectively. So what were the possibilities in, 19, in March 84 for the National Union, given the character of the Nottinghamshire culture and its recent record in not supporting agendas to resist closure? Well, one possibility was to continue the melancholy sequence of national ballots where the union policy was disregarded. A sequence that had culminated in the failure to back a campaign on Lewis Merthyr in 1983, and which clearly was getting absolutely nowhere. The second strategy was the one adopted, which was that of the mass picket. And the problem with the mass picket, of course, was that where those picketed were not persuaded, as soon as the picket went somewhere else, they went back to work. It's very hard, actually, to think of collieries in 84 that were closed for a significant period of time by mass picketing. I can think of Goldbourne Colliery in Lancashire, but it's very difficult to think of others. The third possibility is the one that was paraded in the columns of Marxism today that Nottinghamshire miners should be subject to a campaign of persuasion. I mean, my response to that is I thought they were. <laughs> and they said no. Uh, they were over Lewis Merthyr. They were in the early months of 1984, the area union leadership, some of whose members were sympathetic to the national strategy, certainly put the case for resisting closures. So my own sense on that would be that it was pie in the sky. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, that's one for discussion. I will just leave you with the words of one Knott's striker about the people he worked with. You won't talk them out. You won't picket them out. You won't shame them out. That's the way it is. In other words, this was a problem to which there were no easy solutions. The other person I would like to refer to is, is Michael McGahey. Michael at the start of the strike. We are not dealing with niceties here. We shall not be constitutionalized out of our defense of the, our jobs. Michael later. I think if as an executive we had approached knots without pickets, it might have been different. I reject the idea that 25 or 30,000 knots miners, their wives and families and communities are scabs and blacklegs. I don't find that persuasive. That strategy was tried and it failed. So knots is a conundrum. It necessitates an understanding of its history, an understanding of the structure of the NUM which was in many ways a de facto federation. And the problem with de facto federations is they only march at the pace of the smallest significant member of the federation. That was the dilemma in 1984. I agree with 
all the previous speakers, there was no option. But the problem was that a major coal field continued to work. I finished with a memory from 1987. Uh, after the strike in Lancashire, which was very much driven from the bottom up, I mean, it was the picture painted in particular by Ian, that the full-time officials in Lancashire were almost irrelevant to the strike. Rank and file committee continued to meet. I can remember talking to them in 1987, critically, about the book by Martin Aidney and John Lloyd, Lost Without Limit. We had a good discussion. And at the end, one of the key members of the rank and file committee, a man who'd been on strike at Agecroft for 12 months, where only a minority ever struck, he said to me that he, he found what I said persuasive, and he thought we should all go back to Page Arnott, because that was where you understood mining trade unionism. My view is that is where we should not go. Page Arnott offers a heroic view of miners' struggles, in which divisions were in some senses unnatural, and solidarity was normal. My own perception of everything that happened in 84, of everything that happened in the previous disputes, is what a brittle thing national solidarity was on an issue such as closures. The achievements in the strike in terms of the creativity of miners were amazing. But any thorough understanding of the outcome requires a rigorous analysis of the constraints. That is what I would want to finish on. And to emphasize the problem of knots is not to diminish the achievement. It is, in fact, to give it its proper weight, a better understanding. Okay, thanks very much. Thank <laughs> you.